Yo, what's up guys? Welcome to episode 4 of In Search of Sauce, a show about the journalists, creatives, and writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Nigel Washington, I'm a Philadelphia-based writer, uh, fan, and music journalist of Acid for Sauce, uh, originally from New Orleans, and I plead everybody, please go listen to the new Chief Keith tape, alright, do not forget about our legend, he's still making music, man, alright, um, today I'm joined by two other awesome writers from the Sauce, uh, what's up, fellas? Yeah, how's it going, Nigel? Um, so, I'm Brandon Hill, I'm a writer and editor with Central Sauce, um, Definitely looking forward to the Free Nationals tape, the album coming out. They've got all those singles and more that we haven't heard. They've been putting out since summer, so just really looking forward to seeing that put together as a cohesive project. Yeah, my name's Ben Carter, a writer and editor at Central Source as well. Also run Hip Hop Numbers, and surprisingly, I've been listening to new Little B tape, and it's fire. Little B, 2019, still doing it, so check that out, man. Let's go, let's go. All right, um, and we, we got a few pieces that we'll be talking about in this episode today, shouting out some of the writers and creatives that we appreciate. Um, but before we get into all those pieces, uh, we, we got some stuff that we're cooking over here at Central Sauce too, man, and we, we want to let you guys know about it. Uh, first off, uh, we got a piece that I'm writing myself. Um, it's about the underrepresentation of New Orleans Bounce um, in rap music today. Um, really just a deep dive of some of the biggest artists and how they utilize Awesome music to, to fuel their hits and why some of the artists aren't getting their shine. All right. Great piece. Really, really looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, I can't one. wait for that, man. Yeah, I hope everybody likes it, man. I, I think so. Um, and we got another one from Connor, um, who is the sample guy over at Central Sauce. Everybody knows that. And um, he's taking a deep dive into Jesus is King and Kanye's greatest samples on that. Um, all the samples on that, really. So definitely want to check that out. Um, that's the high point of Jesus is King. So make sure you guys check that out. All right. Um, but today on this podcast, we have three pieces that we'll be talking about. Um, one is going to be the baby, a profile on the baby. Um, another one is going to be uh, tour Flatbush from the Flatbush Zombies. And another is um, the gap um, of racial and gender equality in the rock and roll hip hop and the rock and roll hall of fame. All right. We'll go right into that piece, actually, um, and the homie who brought that up. All right, I'll jump into it. So Evelyn McDonald wrote this piece uh, this year about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how women and people are, who aren't white are not getting the respect and they're, they're just not getting inducted anywhere near as much as just white males. Um, now, the piece, the, the, the premise for the piece doesn't surprise me at all, actually. It's really sad that we have to, again, have this conversation in 2019 uh, but rock and roll as a genre just seems to be based off the appropriation of art from non-white artists by white people who took it and made money from it. And we can use Elvis Presley as the first and perfect example. And you could look at the Rolling Stones who just would not exist without blues music. Like that's just the way it is. But the thing about this piece that, I mean, we all know that, like we all know that. But the thing about this piece that I really, really liked, obviously running hip hop numbers was the way that Evelyn integrates statistics into the article and instead of like making them 
the the focus at the start she slowly slowly makes them the focal point as we get into it and the reason i began hip-hop numbers was to write articles exactly like this and i did it with the grammys which uh comes to a, a very similar conclusion that these award shows don't care about the artistic contributions of black people or women they just statistically they do not care and you can you can say subjectively but when you bring statistics into it it's just it's just a non-starter they there's you know they they don't care and we know that pop music is success is heavily geared towards males but rock and roll hall of fame is not explicitly defined as the most commercially successful acts of all time it's designed to recognize influence contribution impact things that are gender and race neutral when you scratch away at the surface now the best thing about this article is when the accusations of gaslighting are made. So, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and a lot of people in this this kind of realm, I think the Oscars kind of did it as well, the Grammys did it as well, where they said that the media was being overly critical and they try to grab situational factors to justify the fact that less women are being inducted in. Um, but when you when you present the statistics, as the writer has done, so two of the 26 people on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation board are women. Two out of 26. Four of the 29 2019 nominating board are women. That's 13.8%. White men make up 64.3% of all inductees across their 33-year history. Women make up just 7.7%. There is no rational argument. You can't sit there and logically tell me that that makes sense. That makes rational sense. Now, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame try to claim that as time has progressed, more women have been in bands. Hence, more women are now being nominated. But as the article points out, it isn't hard to have more women nominated when your base is basically zero. And it only really started to upturn around 2016. So we've waited all this time. So you're saying that in 2016, all of a sudden, there was this huge upturn in the amount of women in bands or the upturn in, uh, like, it doesn't make sense because they're, they're bringing, they're inducting artists from, you know, the 90s and 2000s. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, I love, I love, <laughs> the best part about this article, man, is when the writer goes in on mediocre white male rock bands. This is the part that is super damning, super damning. So they talk about Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, the Dave Matthews band being inducted, and you have to agree 100%. It's like the old adage of women have to work three times as hard to get half the credit. And as, you know, like the the writer mentions people like Aretha Franklin not being inducted and like waiting so long to give certain artists and certain female artists recognition where you know how can you possibly induct Def Leppard into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before someone like Aretha Franklin like it just it doesn't make any sense and so you know the um as a, the the thing that really struck me about this is as a white male we have to, like I have to know my privilege the door is always open for me Right, I just have to walk through it, and I, I actually said that on the on the the last Central Source podcast I appeared on, and it, it, it's sad that I have to. I don't know why it's always in my brain, like it just keeps coming up because it's so it's so intrinsically linked to music for some reason. The issue is it's an issue that's endemic in Western society, and I really appreciate the writer for bringing statistics to prove the point. But the penult penultimate paragraph is the important one, and it says. 
it says this, it starts with, on some days, I honestly think, forget the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I personally question, this is me talking now, why we've never fully gotten behind these movements. Because it happened with the Grammys, who I've statistically proven are horribly biased against hip-hop and traditionally non-white genres. Jay-Z cast off the Grammys in song. Um, and yet, well, Tyler actually tweeted the other day that he would like to win Grammys for Eagle. When Chance won, it was huge news. When Cardi won, it was huge news. And I don't get the fascination with these systems created by white males that we attach such prestige and esteem to. I don't think it will change anytime soon. And I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I guess a separate show entirely has to be created, or a separate a separate like entity that can bestow praise upon people. But I just I just don't know what the answer is. There's no alternative at the moment. And it's like this uh, playing hard to get phenomenon, which is a it's deeply rooted in human psychology. I've studied the psychology behind it, gone to talks about it, watch it play out in real life. Um, and it seems to drive a lot of humans almost wild with desire. It's like this idea of if even if the white males accept me, as a a non-white female, then I've really made it. It's like, I just don't get, I don't know why we're still attaching any, any kind of uh, prestige to these, these institutions. It just, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know, because I, I personally don't think that the Rock and Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is going to change. I don't think the Grammys are going to change. I think that they are, the people that are behind them are just these white males and and they just retreat. And when they're being attacked like this with statistics and facts, they just hide underground and then they come back up again when everything's safe and then they just keep doing the same behavior. I don't see, I've never really seen an institution uh, give up or share that privilege or power around. And so I, I, I don't know what the answer is, man. I don't know what the answer is. And it's just very frustrating. It's on two fronts. Firstly, the front that you know rock and roll was created off black musicians and still is not giving them the credit they deserve in 2019. But secondly, that we're still attaching any kind of prestige to this. What do you guys think about that? I just I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I'm honestly it was it was pretty shocking to read that Aretha Franklin was not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. Yeah, and no Cher, no Dolly Parton. That's crazy just to think about that, like how they're, they're largely considered legends, infamous. I mean, if anyone deserves to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would definitely put Aretha Franklin before the Dave Matthews band. I mean, that's that's that's, that's obvious. That's obvious. That's yeah. But I, I'm, it's hard for me to not feel a little... A little more optimistic about these kinds of things because with with the culture being the way that it is people are very quick to be outraged on some of these things and it's only it's only a matter of time before i feel like or at least i hope that people start you know not kicking doors and 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 really getting into the the selection committee or whoever is responsible for for these mishaps because they're mishaps they're missteps they're mistakes you know, these things, um, no, and no disrespect to the Dave Matthews band or anyone out there who loves Dave Matthews band, but uh, we also have to be honest with ourselves that Aretha Franklin and Cher have contributed more to culture and music culture at large than anything the Dave Matthews band have done. I'm not a big Dave Matthews fan. I don't know their contributions like that, 
but I know Aretha Franklin's and I know Cher's, and I think theirs speak for themselves. See, that's honestly was one of the things I thought was the most surprising about the article was that I feel like, you know, if you go back a couple decades, like, it wouldn't be that surprising if uh, African-American artists and women weren't being recognized as well, but the ra- the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has actually gone in reverse with that trend, uh, and it seems like it seems if you go to the graph that they have, that it's constantly getting worse. Yeah, with the uh, it, with the the first year that they did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, fifty five point eight percent of the inductees were African American or non white, and it, it has gone completely in reverse since then, which I thought was surprising because of the way, you know, like you mentioned, like social climates that bring that kind of pressure. And I think that the article did a really good job of pointing out two major areas. Um, you know, they use all this quantification, but they they really applied two main problems with how the, the statistics and how uh, non-white and female artists have been slighted and the first one was actually something that I really didn't even know before reading this article but all of the former members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame actually get to vote on the nominees mm, yeah that's and, important yeah and I think that uh, there's a great quote in here where Evelyn attributes it to you know um See, despite the later's all-female game changers having been eligible for 12 more years than the jam band because of DMB's gender-neutral music achievements, not because the mostly white male nominating committee sees themselves in this group of guys. Mm. And I think whenever you whenever you have, you know, a group of people that are voting on something, it I mean it's proven psychologically that we tend to vote for you know, people that we're, we connect to easier and people that we, like, see ourselves in. So if you get a huge voter base that is mostly white males, they're going to continue to vote more white males into their group. And then the second problem that I think has compounded this issue and continues to make that disparity even larger is when the uh, when Evelyn mentions that when female artists are selected, they're usually selected as solo female artists, you know, uh, like big name solo female artists, as opposed to men being selected and white men especially being selected in bands of, you know, five, six members. And since you elect a band of five, six members, each one of those members gets to vote on the continuing additions to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you might give one slot to a female artist and think that they're giving one slot to a white male band, but in reality, that one slot ends up making up six votes compared to one vote from a female artist. My question is, do you think that... Uh, let's just play devil's advocate for a second. Do you think that that's intentional? I don't I don't think it's... Well, I don't, see, I don't think it's intentional. It's, I mean, especially not in, you know more recently within the last decade, I could see it being more plausible that that would have been intentional like decades and decades ago. Mm. But I think it's definitely not intentional now. It's just the way that those kind of numbers work out because they had that, you know, institutionalized disparity that's established and now it's kind of running away with itself. You would, you would think that 
greater minds would prevail in the in those situations though i mean you would you would assume that the decision makers over there would would realize that like something something's not right and something's something's not obviously something has gone awry in this in this process um and i would i you would think it wouldn't take an article for something like that to change and and we don't we don't know if an article will but i mean i just know that a, a lot of people who would be in those rooms probably wouldn't co-sign this type of thing now i don't i don't think are they doing it on purpose i I'm not gonna put that on them per se, yeah, yeah. but I can't I can't absolve them of the clear disparity. I mean, it's it's right there in our face, um, and if they don't realize it, then they're they're they they get the same blame as if they were doing it intentionally in my in my eyes because I always like I wonder how a scholar of of rock and roll music could even get down this path like how do how do they get this far down this path where we're seeing these numbers now and you're right it, it shouldn't take an article to 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 make them change like they should know they should they should know the history of rock and roll like i don't I, it doesn't make sense like as, as someone who uh loves hip-hop and adores hip-hop like i went back and studied the whole thing and like went back to the roots of it and studied where it began and uh, what how do you get to 2019 and you don't know where rock and roll began and you're not understanding the actual influence of non-white artists and women i i just don't understand that i don't know it doesn't compute with me yeah i don't i don't know the date exactly but macklemore won best rap album over kendrick lamar it is 2012 2012 and every i mean the audience knew the presenter knew everyone knew kendrick lamar deserved to get that album to get to get that award for for album of the, for rap album of the year, to this day we when you look back at the the albums who have received received that award since then, and you look at that list, and that's a clear clear blemish, on 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 that list, and that's that's literally their fault. That's their fault, and whether they meant to to do it intentionally or not, whether they, I don't know the the thought, thought process behind it. If I'm in that room, I'm shaking the table for Kendrick Lamar. Um, and I don't know if anyone else is really doing that. Um, so if they're complicit, then, yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I'm not going to give passes to anyone because it's it's an oversight that affects history to this day. Um, That's true. That's and, true. And if we don't fix it today and we don't shake the table today, then who knows? Who, who knows when the people who deserve to get in actually get in? But how do artists shake the table? Like, like this this whole boycott thing. It just it never seems to pan out. You know, I, I thought the Grammys were genuinely going to get a boycott, or not a boycott, but but rappers were going to place much less importance on winning a Grammy, and yet it just hasn't been the case at all. Even when it's been statistically proven that they are, they have no idea. They're completely tone deaf. I. I what do we do? Like, how do we shake the table as artists or as fans? I think the uh, the article here actually pointed out a few pretty good examples where artists have done what they can to shake yeah, the table. That was cool. um, for example, she mentions that Nirvana, yeah, uh, Nirvana, upon their induction performance, they had like four different females. I think said sing uh, Kurt Cobain's. Yeah, 
when Nirvana, when Nirvana was inducted in 2014, Dave Grohl and Chris Novelsick pointedly chose four women to sing Kurt Cobain's parts during their performance. I mean, that's a very powerful statement because, you know, for one thing, you're saying, like, Nirvana, you as, a, as an entity have chosen Nirvana as one of the highest rock and roll honors, and we're going to take four women and show you that these women can do the same thing that yeah. you've recognized us for. Yeah, you know, kind of pointing out the the hypocrisy for not selecting women. And then saying that it's purely based on, you know, a talent and impact role, you know. And then Nirvana goes and they show, like, like you know, you're saying that women aren't able to do these things as well. And yet, we're going to show you them doing the exact same thing that you're recognizing us for. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still a very hard question because, I mean, as a fan fans all we can do really is put lesser value to it which doesn't help i mean we can stop watching the the award ceremonies um we can say who cares when these types of things come out and and all these other things but at the end of the day they're still going to matter in, in in the large part of cultural history um and artists themselves i mean to really shake the table apart from literally not going and, and, you know, um, speaking badly on them at every turn and interview, which doesn't always end up the right way. I don't know. I honestly don't know. You got to I think you got to kind of infiltrate the system, get former artists, get more people who are just tuned in a little bit more. It's, it's a tough it's a tough question because it's, it's been going on for a long time. Um, and we, we've realized this across across a lot of different mediums, not just music. But movies, television, a lot of different mediums and, and creative spaces. So it's tough. I think in this case, Evelyn actually touched on a really good solution for this problem when she talks about how, you know, Janet Jackson made a big statement about nominating more female artists for 2020. And then, you know, people kind of had the expectations of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for their 2020 nominations if they could make a statement about it by nominating all female artists. And to me, I think that is an incredible solution for this because something like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, this doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even run the same way the Grammys do where, you know, the music that came out that year only has the chance to be nominated for recognition that year. In the case of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if you don't get a nomination one year, you can get a nomination again the next year. There's not, you know, a specific time frame for when you have to earn that nomination. Like, many of the artists in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have been nominated post-mortem. So if you nominated all female artists and got an induction class of all female artists that are then allowed to vote on the next induction class, you start to break down that disparity by evening things out numbers-wise. I think it's a lot easier... For the people who are you know in these positions, who they kind of brush this off as we're not biased, this is just how things panned out, because they don't see, you know, they don't see their own internal bias because their thought process when they're going through this isn't I'm going to vote for this guy because he's white, you know, that's more of a below the surface kind of motivation that's not directly intentional, but when you take a step back and you look at all the data like Evelyn has presented it and you quantify it then it becomes apparent that when you get large groups of people making this kind of decisions, those under-the-surface psychological 
you know, factors do play in when you quantify it with that many people over that extended of an amount of time. Yeah, I think, Nigel, what you said about infiltrating the system and then changing it from within is exactly what Brandon was speaking of there. And I think that's the way forward. I think these artists that are being inducted or these artists who actually have a platform, you know, shout out to Nirvana. They've always been about women's rights and they've always been speaking up about feminism. And and that's amazing that they did that. And I honestly think that's the way forward because once you, I mean, these these outlets are set up uh, based around these these art these artists. Like the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame does not exist without the artists. You know, music journalism, music, all these award shows do not exist without the artists. So the artists, if they they rise up and they they have a common goal and they're in the system already, and then they say things like that, that's how it's going to change. And I think that's amazing. I, I think you're 100 right. I, I hope that that starts to become the trend. Yeah. Uh, a, a induction year where even the, the, the mention that all women are being nominated and a, a good amount could actually be inducted. Um, from a PR standpoint, that's a great look. That, that's a great look for them. Um, I, it, it seems like a no-brainer, but clearly <laughs> things look more complicated than that. But even more so than just a PR standpoint, it down the line can actually solve the problem. Because this is one of the things I was looking into, Ben. I was telling you that I myself crunched some numbers. Um, because, you know, when I got to think about the fact that the artists are the actual voter base. And, you know, there are a lot of these rock bands out there that are fantastic. And if they deserve to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they may only have like one female vocalist as, a pair, as compared to having like five other males um or in a specific example if you think of fleetwood mac Mm. the most recognizable piece of fleetwood mac is stevie nicks 100 a female artist but when you take fleetwood mac and you put them into the voter pool you're adding and i i ran the numbers are on this specific band you're adding six white male voters and two female voters for fleetwood mac and that case comes up in, you know, several other bands. And then on top of that, you know, you just add the sheer numbers of people in a, in a band that are all white males um, that take, you know, just one slot in the nomination. So I did a little bit of counting. And by my count, there are 770 total people added to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame over the course of 217 separate inductions. So then I took you know, that total number, and then using Evelyn McDonald's statistics, I wanted to see, you know, for each demographic, what the average number in, included per induction spot is, if that makes sense. So there is, per induction spot, there is an average of 2.28 white men included per induction spot. There's an average of 1.16 people of color inducted per spot, and only 0.27 women inducted per spot. So basically, if you take every four inductions, so every, you know, each year they usually include about, what, like eight inductions, like six to eight inductions. So for every four inductions, there is roughly nine white men added, four or five people of color, and one woman. So over the course of 20 to 25 years, if you take these numbers for every single induction, that's where we see that disparity that exists in that graph. 
because you're only adding more and more white men who are then going to vote for more and more white men. And the females are getting a, you know, steady, low number of percentage representation. So by taking that all, you know, an all female induction class, you, you skew those numbers, you know, the average demographic inductions per spot. You know, you give a plug of 20 great female artists and add those to the voter base. And then that starts to make up for some of that disparity in voting for decades down. Yeah, and I want to speak just very quickly because there is a criticism of that in modern society where there's a difference between equality of outcome and equality of opportunity. And a lot of people are very critical of equality of outcome where you have quotas and you have to have a certain amount of either females or non-white people in an organization. Um, and it's it's across a lot of different realms, especially in business and especially in universities and places like that. But what you're talking about here is definitely a quality of opportunity. It's not a quality of outcome because with that huge white male voter base, you're not giving women the opportunity to even have a voice in this process, let alone have a quality of outcome. I believe truly if you give people the equality of opportunity, a quality of outcome will just come about naturally. That's just how it works. Mm -hmm. But they don't have even the basic level of equality of opportunity when there are that many white males on the voter base. So... Yeah, that's 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 one hundred percent right, and so I don't see it as a negative thing. It's not a PR like it is a PR. It would be a good PR thing, but it, it's it's much deeper than that, and it shouldn't be criticized. I feel like it's one of those things that people will criticize and say they're bending to the left or they're giving in to social justice warriors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It should be about the purity of the art. It's yeah, not about it the purity disrupts of the, art, the integrity it, of the process completely. One hundred percent. The the process is broken. This is how to fix it. This is. This is not a. It's not uh, playing lip service. It's not bowing to to social pressure. It's literally just fixing a broken system, and it has to be done. I agree. It has to be done, or we disengage. The issue. The issue with that, and we can we can wrap this up in a minute. But the issue with that is, they also have to admit that they were wrong, and that yeah. the system that they've been living in <laughs> isn't isn't right. And that's right. Exact. Good luck with that. Good luck with making an entity like that admit that they were broken. And that they, they were doing something wrong. Oh, that is okay. That's another great thing. I actually, when I was going over and doing all this count, it it I look. It's not unprecedented for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to make a major adjustment based on input. Um, when I went back and looked in the year 2012, six out of 12 inductions were given to background bands for vocalists that had already been inducted. Six out of 12 nominations in 2012, and there was no previous nominations for, you know, backup groups. For example, like one of the groups off the top that I remember is the Miracles were inducted um, when Smokey Robinson had been inducted years before that. So, mm. you know, I didn't read anything directly about this. This is something I just saw from looking raw at the data. But my guess is that there was pressure and they... They, you know, they decided like, okay, we've recognized these great artists, but now, you know, people are wanting us to recognize some of the people around them that helped to make them great. So they did a huge push and half of the nominations in 2012 were given to uh, groups in a way that they had not previously ever done the nominations. Well, it can be done then. It can definitely be done. Yeah. That proves it. I mean, so really, um, we, we, everybody has to band together. 
and, and, and get these changes in. So if you're listening on this podcast, uh, or if you if you care anything about music culture or anything, we definitely start paying attention to these nominations, these inductions. Um, notice the trends because they're they're right there and they're they're obvious. And shout out Evelyn for uh, for for making these apparent on this article and really bringing the, the spotlight to this because it's it's a disparity that affects all of us, all of us to this day. And as women in, in music become more and more powerful, especially in rap, um, it's a situation that could easily easily stay the same if we don't if we don't shake the table ourselves about it. So, hundred percent, well said. Shout out. All right, so this is, it's actually a little bit older of a piece. It's from 2018, um, but I remembered it. It's one of my favorite artist profiles. Uh, Flatbush Zombies Guide to Flatbush. So on episode two, I brought up a profile of Ari Lennox, and I brought, you know, how much I enjoyed the profile because it allowed the reader to connect to Ari Lennox on a way that they can be familiar with by drawing on her childhood. Uh, Well, this article by Emen Stevenson takes that to the next step by not just, you know, talking to the artist in an interview and getting, you know, information about their past and trying to build a picture of who they are to give the reader something to connect to, but by going to their neighborhood, going directly to their roots and, you know, walking around and not just hearing a story about a place, you know, to get a quote. But going to that place and seeing the artist physically interact with pieces that develop them into the person that they are. Um, so, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to talk about, you know, again, what we liked about this piece as a profile, how this can be applied to approaching artist work, you know, in profiles to come. Yeah, I think I love, love the idea of taking a rapper or an art, artist or a group who have made it and bringing them back to their origin story. I mean, literally taking them there. Um, a lot of times we see artist profiles where the, the writer might discuss it at some length, but they, they weren't with the artist as they strolled the streets um, that that them and I really like this the set piece that he opened up with the the narrative that he created I mean and it's it, a she actually oh she I'm sorry I'm sorry I apologize uh, yeah, I, I went and her up. um and I I loved the kind of there's there's moments of like humbleness in there too I mean there's a there's a section where um one of the members gets like harassed by by, by a police officer just walking walking down his walking down his own street um, and it's, it, it's, it's humbling for them, I think, but it also gives us great perspective of just these, these celebrity, um, that we see that even in their own neighborhoods, you know, when they go back, it, it, it can be the same thing, but to hear their stories about their, their stretches of pavement, um, it's great to hear it cause you really don't hear it that often. And it's surprising that you don't, but you really don't hear it. Yeah, that uh, that police officer story was initially what made this uh, stand out to me as a profile. And that's what, since you know, since it is an older piece, that is what 
made this piece memorable to me. You know, just the odds of that happening, well, which for the for the listeners who haven't read the piece yet, um, go do it. But so what happened was they were walking down the street and a plainclothes police officer, so an undercover officer, uh, stopped and detained Flatbush Zombies because they were able to identify a knife that uh, Michi Darko was carrying in his pocket as an illegal knife. Um, so just to show the amount of, I don't know what the right word here is, the amount of attention that they're paying to people who are just walking down the street, and they're walking down the street with a full entourage of, you know, a reporter and cameras and all that, and they still, undercover police officers, you know, still stop and detain them for, you know, just doing their own down the street, let alone what would have happened, which Michi says himself that he would have been arrested if it wasn't for being with two white women and a reporter from the New York Times. Yeah, the thing that struck me most about this, because I'd just been listening to Dave East's new album, and there's a great three-song stretch on that album where he talks about growing up and how difficult it was just even getting to school, let alone being in school, because... You know, he, he even says on the song, like, I've seen people murdered on my way to school. And that's what Flatbush Zombies were talking about in this article. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you wear the wrong colors and you're in trouble. And for that to actually happen during the interview and for them to, you know, walk away from that. And, and for I think it was Michi that said, you know, if you guys weren't here, I would have been in jail. Like, it, it's just, it, it really blew my mind. I was like, wow, man, that was, that's a crazy story to have happen during this interview. But... I really like the, you know, I've seen artist um, artist profile pieces like this before, but I've never really, and it's always been it's always been done like when the artist is really massive already. Like for example, like I don't know, Eminem going back to Detroit, and then the the GQ writer or whatever Rolling Stone writer is like going around riding around with him or. It, like a real superstar like Jay-Z with Oprah and he's walking down through Marcy Projects in 2009. But this was great because it was like Flatbush Zombies aren't on that pop star level, but they've made it, you know, they've they've really made it. And then to take them back and they're not super far removed from this period of their life. It's not like they've got, you know, five number one albums under their belt. It's like they've they've achieved success, you know, they've done very, very well. But they're still attached to that that those that heritage and those roots, and then it, they're so attached that an undercover police officer would arrest and but then let them like you know it was just a it was just such a crazy story to have happen in the middle of that uh of that that interview and I thought it was great man like I really like seeing these kind of pieces where as I say the artist hasn't fully blown up they they're big but this was 2018 and to just grab them at that point and then take them back and then to go through that story of how they got to that place is it was great i really like it it was felt really organic yeah and uh, another thing that i think the second thing um honestly this is probably the first thing more than the the police officer story was some of the stories weren't really even about the flatfoot zombies a lot of them were about the people that they remember who are still there um, mm-hmm. The comic, the comic book store was just a really, really cool scene to include. Yep, the, that's yeah. exactly what I was about to say. The comic book store owner, who you know, you would think. I mean, he literally said, "This is it's an honor." He called it an honor. Um, 
with the Flatbush Zombies and the, the things that they were doing, just just coming back um, and spending time with him. And I think I think that's that's definitely a part of the story that that I really appreciate appreciated from Iman, um, and that that narrative. I think we 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 can talk about Flatbush and their their influence and their their star power and the music that they create uh, for days and days, but to talk about the store owners where they used to hang out at, or the the, the high school where they they didn't graduate from, <laughs> or or. Or you know, just little nuggets of their of their neighborhood that literally fuel who they are to the point where they're literally named Flatbush. To me, I mean, it's a it's a excellent narrative. Um, the story was was half about Flatbush zombies, but but definitely the other half about Flatbush and the people of Flatbush. And I think if anyone appreciates that story more than us, it's it's the Flatbush zombies. I mean, as an artist, you definitely wanna you wanna see those people that you remember that you appreciate. Um, talked about in these articles. To you know, he'll probably that that comic book owner will probably never be in another New York Times article again if it's not for the Flatbush Zombies. Um, and I'm I'm sure he was giddy, completely beside himself that he could wake up in the morning and read this piece and see his name and his and his shop mentioned. And I think that that means more than anything, more than anything. Yeah, and they and they also mentioned you know how the. Flatbush Zombies signed, like, for his store, they signed a bunch of special limited collector's edition um, Marvel Marvel comics that actually did a rendition of 3001 Laced Odyssey's comic book cover with Deadpool. And, you know, what, like what you were saying about, you know, half the narrative being about Flatbush Zombies, the other half of the narrative being about Flatbush, you know, it even uses that moment to highlight some of the smaller narratives that are going on within that neighborhood. Um, one of the zombies, when they're referring to the comic book store, even says that it's shocking that the store is still open, you know, because of gentrification and rent prices and things like that going up. He's surprised that it hasn't been pushed out of business. So, you know, that is a smaller underlying narrative that you wouldn't get out of an interview where you're just sitting down with an artist talking to him. Because then an artist is going to talk about the comic book store how they spent time there as a kid, and it's always going to be told in the context of the artist and who they are and how it's influenced their story. But by taking them there, the journalist gave an opportunity for the zombies to expand on the narrative of their neighborhood and not just their narrative. The thing I love about that the most is what I've discovered growing older and just living life and experiencing a lot of things and and meeting so many different people is it's it's always those formative people that never get the credit they deserve. It's like they put in all the work behind closed doors or they, they, they're the ones that are dropping knowledge or they're the ones that taught you or they're the ones that brought you up or gave you a safe place or you know, there's infinite ways that they've influenced your life. And there are people who you know, get, gain a lot of success out of, out of, not out of that, but that was formative and helpful to them. And even just success that is not mainstream so for example it could be anything it could be like you know someone with mental illness overcoming it and then all those people that help them overcome it and there's no there's no overt recognition for those people and what i really love about this concept is and and as a super fan of artists i love it when they do this i love it when they go back and tell us how they were formed and like uh, how their career progressed at this very basic early stage 
and it's something that is always so missing from these editorials usually is these uh, these other people you know these people that were very important to these artists that we love and idolize and then you know they get a bit of reflected glow but they really deserve credit and they deserve credit for well in this case the comic book store for creating a safe space for these these guys to hang out it's like it just it it felt really wholesome and it felt like for the first time in a long time i read an article that didn't just focus entirely on the main artist it focused on every part of them and those people who were formative in those artists becoming who they are got the credit they deserve and i really like that yeah i mean that's that's a part of that is what we all really want to see and and hear about these i mean doing a profile about somebody when they when they've made it you know all of those kind of start to to sound the same in a sense but when you talk about the places they're from and how how they made it from there and the the usually the unusual set of circumstances that they came from um when you look into a lot of these rappers and how they got started a lot of them are by chance i mean i remember action bronson he he the only reason he got started rapping was because he, he broke his leg working in the kitchen yeah, that was crazy. And, and I he, hadn't heard that story. Yeah, that's yeah, an amazing story. story. And yeah. he was he was off his feet, out of work for a few months, and he picked up rapping. And the next thing you know, um, he he is the Action Bronson. And it's yeah. it's those stories that we want to hear. It's those stories that that as a reader, as a fan, um, as someone who sometimes these artists really inspire us. It helps to hear those stories when when we're down on ourselves and our art. Um, or when we kind of don't know the direction we're taking. Um, you can look at these origin stories and really see how sometimes it's a stroke of luck and sometimes it's, it's just a, a, a will and determination. Um, and yeah, I think, I think this piece did excellent in all those, uh, in all those phases. Um, it's a really, really great profile. Absolutely. Final piece we'll talk about today um, is going to be a profile about the baby um, from Rolling Stone, from Charles Holmes, aka on Twitter, he's the Otter God. Um, a lot of people know him as that. Um, he recently did the um, bird watching with Doja Cat. If anyone hasn't watched that, you should definitely watch that because Doja Cat is. Also, shout out Doja Cat's new album. That was really good. I still have to get into Doja Cat's new album. There's some there's some great cuts on that. Um, but on, on this one, he talked about the baby. Um, the the title is simple: the baby of the year. And I don't I don't think anyone can disagree with that. The baby is the baby of the year. And what I really appreciated about this feature article was a part of it was just the the conciseness. Um, if that's a word, I don't think that's a word, but I'm, I'm gonna use it anyway. Um, how he was how he was able to. To pack a lot into a little. Um, I don't know if the baby's a great interviewer. Um, he has his moments from what I've seen. Um, but he was able to take these little nuggets that the baby gave us, and and really um, go deeper into that, and 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 pull those threads from, and and really create a narrative that I, I think works perfect um, with the baby. I mean, yeah, he's the baby's a star. 
And to hear these little things about how he nonchalantly throw, uh, throws out the fact that he spends his own money on videos. That was incredible. Oh, my God. A good thousands of dollars on his videos. And when you when you look at the videos that he makes, I mean, that's that's a huge part of his stardom. You know, um, I don't think anyone could ignore the baby after Walker, Texas Ranger. I mean, the, the video is so captivating and it's been consistent throughout his stardom. Um, and it, there's a, a ton of little nuggets like that. Um, I absolutely thought that the baby was a bad kid when he was growing up. He just looks, he just has that look of <laughs> when he was a baby, he probably looked like he was bad. <clears throat> the baby says he's not and it makes sense. Um, yeah, he said he's been in more fights since he became a rapper than, you know, what he ever was before that, which was pretty surprising to hear from a rapper who literally caught a body in a Walmart. Like, exactly. And and from being at uh, UNC at Greensboro when he went to college and saying he stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, the baby sticks out like a sore thumb in instances, but he, he looks completely comfortable in any situations he's ever been in from what I've seen um so it's those little nuggets those little things that like kind of makes my head jump back a little bit like really the baby felt like he stuck out like a sore thumb at one point this charismatic dude who has literally won the hearts of everybody um it was a really great piece that I I really appreciate it um sometimes profiles don't have to be the most beautiful thing and I'm not saying that his, his profile wasn't well written it was definitely well written um but it was it was concise and it, it had just the right elements that I wanted um from somebody who's already just a super mega star at this point yeah this uh definitely definitely did a good job as an interviewer drawing out you know not not just going off of the things that your subject is telling you but going off the things that they're showing you, you know, with body language, with the things that they're not saying. Um, and it, that becomes really apparent, you know, with it, the way the article reads, one of the first questions that the interviewer asked was about baby switching up his flow. Um, and then, you know, uses that indication of where he has that, like, sarcastic moment in the song where somebody asks about switching up the flow. And the interviewer reads his body language and the way that he walks and the way that he comes into the interview all as context clues for applying to a question that he didn't really answer, you know, a question that he was very hesitant to answer and uses all of those pieces to build a very accurate description from the context clues, you know, cause that stuff is it's just as important. Like when you're, you're trying to communicate across the best representation you can of an artist you can't just tell them what they said you know it's it's one of the reasons i'm not huge on the trend of using interview transcripts and just kind of dumping them there and being like okay read this um and this artist definitely did a very very good job of getting across all those little things you know because communicate communication is about so much more than what you say the thing yeah i mean these pieces I'm actually on the opposite side of the fence to you on that, Brandon, because I actually quite like... What I want to say is I don't always think that these pieces are done very well. I think that a lot of interviewers or a lot of uh, journalists, when they get in this situation, they're not as skilled as, as, as this writer was, and they draw weird conclusions or they focus on things that don't 
seem important or don't seem to matter or they they fill out their article with kind of pointless facts and I'm like he was drinking water or he was drinking Diet <laughs> Coke or and then they, they they make that the focal point of an entire paragraph it's and I don't point. know what their point is but on the, in this article it was really great because firstly it, obviously baby is a complete phenomenon this year like uh, one of the statistics that I pulled up was crazy um, so he said that he was getting paid six digits for a guest verse uh, and in 2019 but when I posted this stat on 26th of September he'd done 20 guest verses the assumption is that he made minimum two million dollars you know and when he did that double uh, XL freshman verse it was the longest double XL freshman verse ever it was 593 words uh, and it was 120 it was two minutes he just went off man he just kept rapping and he actually has the highest first week sales for a pure rap album this year so the baby uh, raps more than ninety percent on his album. Was that is, Kirk or that's Baby Kirk? Yeah, that, that that's Kirk. So that that went number one. That was actually the two hundredth number one hip hop album of all time, Kirk. And it was so hip hop, you know. It was it was just real straight rap. And the albums above it, which are Jesus is King, Igor, and Juice World's album, have significantly more singing. In fact, I think the highest rap percentage of those is Igor at 43% or something. Oh, it might be Kanye. Kanye might have just snuck over 50% rap. But baby kind of bucked the trend a little bit of this whole singing, crooning, uh, trappy, mm. like, meld of styles and just rapped. And, you know, that the funny thing was about it, that that one flow. And yet he came through with an album that everyone was bumping that did really, really well commercially. And so this article could have gone left you know it could have been like it could have been just a generic boring piece of work but shout out to the journalist for you know making those inferences about his body language and and his situation and uh, obviously like i personally didn't know a lot about the baby except he can throw hands i was like man this guy can you don't want to test this guy like this guy punches better than he raps like, he literally punched a dude out of his pants in a Gucci store. That's wild, man. That is such a wild thing. I didn't hear about the Walmart thing. I didn't know. Is that a true story? Because in the article, it alludes to it. But I, Yes. That- Some uh, guy apparently tried to rob him in Walmart, and the baby shot him and killed him. Shit. I'm not... That was which this it was... He said that he was, he was in it with like his family. Um, and then he, he, he realized, I remember reading about this, he realized what was happening before it was happening. Um, and he, you know, he was with his girl, his baby mama and his, and his baby, he ushered them to the side and then, you know, it popped off and then that's, that's what happened. I mean, he's, he's, he's never the instigator though. That's the thing. Cause he's been, he's been robbed at, at his house. He's been, his house has been invaded before he was the baby, the big baby. He he, you know, it's just these things that people test him, and uh, you know, he's he's punched a guy mid verse at a rap show. So like, yeah, I saw that. That was wild. <laughs> you you gotta not press the baby, and he's not trying to be pressed. <laughs> That's the great thing about this article. He he feels like a boogeyman. Like it's like that Fifty Cent thing where back in the day, there's a great Fifty Cent line on the massacre. I think he's like, I hold my mic in my left, my knife in my right hand, and it's just like this great imagery of. 50 cent holding his microphone in his left and if someone tries to test him on stage he's going to stab you with his right like he's always ready and i had that feeling with the baby every time i heard about him it was like he was just throwing hands and coming off the winner 
And then to hear this story, it really, it didn't human, I'm not saying he wasn't human, um, but it really gave him a different angle to what I was being presented by mainstream media of this kind right. of thuggish guy. And I'm not saying Kirk wasn't a personal album, you know, the intro is very personal, but a lot of it was uh, pretty aggressive and, and pretty hard-edged. And so to get this behind-the-scenes look at baby as a person and clearly a very intelligent and well-spoken person was and i'm not saying again i'm not saying that you know he doesn't come across that way in his music it's just these these images that the media present us normally and that's why i like this article so much because it goes against that just generic hey the baby got in another fight let's get a million clicks on this one article because the baby beat someone up in a gucci store or whatever and it's like this person actually went behind it and had a look under the surface and said, look, we're not going to do this stupid clickbait stuff. We're not going to talk about his fights and we're not going to talk about the time he caught a body in Walmart. Like we're not going to do an entire article on that. We're actually going to talk about the human behind all of those activities and let's discover what how he feels about it. And uh, I love that. I really, really love this article more than I thought I would. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I think for me personally, I kind of want to. I kind of wanted to use this to to talk about the baby himself because in the article uh, he discusses the 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 difference, um, how the baby kind of got more personal. I, I wanted to get you, you y'all's opinion on what what do we think is next for the baby? I mean, he's he's had a a year in hip hop that you really only see once. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Ben mentioned earlier he's done 20 guest verses this year and on top of that put out two albums. So, I mean, they make a reference to uh, one of the, yeah, Carolyn Diaz, senior director of A&R Interscope, describes baby as never yeah. sleeping, always That's working. Great. And I feel like that is a very thrown away line that gets used a lot about a lot of people, but holy shit like two full-length albums 20 feature verses and then on top of that the which i thought was the most outstanding fact in the whole article was that he has paid for every video he shot and i mean that's why i was really glad to see you bring this article because i wanted a platform to talk about the baby's most recent video anyway <laughs> the one for bop because holy shit that video is amazing I've been trying to get my girlfriend to watch it for like two days now. And I, oh, however long it's been. I've only been out for like a day and a half. Yeah, and it's already like almost two million views on YouTube, I think. And and then, so like to see that and then to get the added context of that he pays for all those videos. Like that video has the Jabberwockies in it. And I don't know what kind of checks they get. <laughs> they get checks, man. But to now, to know the baby <laughs> signed that check. And he could easily have made a successful music video without that. You know, he doesn't need that to get a million views on YouTube. But the fact that he cares that much about, you know, his artistry and his craft, and he puts that much attention into his videos that he's going to write that check, I, I think just speaks to a lot of what who DaBaby is that this article is directing. Yeah, so the, the, I, I find this a fascinating discussion because Charlie and I on our podcast have been constantly talking about trap and we've we've been speaking about it for, you know, 30 episodes. It, it always comes up like when is trap's reign 
gonna end and I, when i say trap i mean the the kanye started 808s and then the travis scott astro world kind of ds2 future thing and i truly do believe that trap has come to an that that iteration of trap has come to an end and there will be a transition back towards rappers rapping rapidly rap you know dropping bars dropping hard edge grimy stuff and i think griselda is at the vanguard of this but i think the baby is floating above them and he's punching through this glass ceiling that these these incredible rappers seem to be stuck under for some reason you know i've done some statistics on the death of the third verse and i think the third verse is very important in hip-hop oh my god yeah <laughs> i literally dead. was just thinking I, 2000 to 2010, you couldn't listen to a rap song that, that didn't have three verses on it. And now you're you're lucky if you get two and a half, like two, and usually the third verse is from a guest. Yo, you're absolutely right. You know, I did, I've got these statistics and I've posted them up a couple times on Hip Hop Numbers and it is freaking scary and quantifiable. It's like from 2010 to 2019, the line just dips, dips, dips. And I can tell you this, top 10 albums of 2019 average two verses a song that's it and and like i think it was something like 20 percent of songs on those albums have a third verse now i'm not saying that the baby is rapping third verses i haven't i've got the numbers on him somewhere and i think there's probably a lot of two verse tracks in there but i think it's it's a an indication of that original hip-hop that real rapidy 90s kind of um you know bars with a focus and and the baby reminds me a lot of 50 cent and just in the way he's moving and the calculated way and the, the belief he has in himself and so to pay for your own videos and to know that if you you have something and this is another thing that's super underrated and and as you're right you're right brandon it wasn't a throwaway line in that article about how hard he works it's so freaking important you have to work really really hard especially if you believe in yourself and so I don't think the baby can fail. In fact, I know that this has been a watershed year for him and, and kind of like a breakthrough, and it looks like he might not top this. I think he is going... We're going to look back, and I, this is just a prediction for me. I'm not sure that this will happen. I hope it does, but I don't know that it will. But I feel like we're going to look back on the baby's 2019. We're going to look back at Kirk and say, wow, he was the highest selling first week for a true rap album. And in five years' time, we're going to be like, wow, that's when the tide started to change and head back towards and it it irks me that it goes almost goes back to that 2007 sales battle between 50 and kanye and we can look at that and we we're not going to put the death of gangster rap or in the mainstream on kanye and 50 cent we're going to say that was an indicator that the tide was changing and i personally believe based off no statistics by the way this is just my opinion uh that this could be the tide changing and heading back towards a more rap focused mainstream in hip hop. Hmm. That's a very interesting take. You know, I never thought of that. And I never I never thought to compare what I see and hear from the baby to what we experienced in those early two thousands. Um when things were a little more colorful. You know, Nelly Nelly yeah, was man. doing colorful things, Chingy, Snoop, everything was a little more vibrant. Uh, everything had a it was fun. It was fun. fun. One oh six in Park was giving us a ton of fun back uh, then. And and things got dark and deep and and future and and all these other guys came out with some you know the druggy SoundCloud rap that we that we still love to an extent but that's a very interesting point and I think I honestly think you might really be onto something about 
this year being a primer for the baby, not not the peak that we're seeing. Um, I would love I would love to see that change. I think it'd be a a fresh fresh view of hip hop um, away from the the face tats and the the different colored dreads. I'd love to see someone who looks and feels like the baby start to influence uh, the younger generation in that in that way. Yeah. So shout out uh, to the baby man. Please keep keep doing great things. If you're listening out there, go watch Bop on Hollywood. Right now, like as soon as we finish this podcast, which we're about to wrap up right now, go watch that. Um, it's a great, great piece uh, of art. And um, I want to thank the writers that we talked about for continuing to do great things in journalism. Um, you inspire us and you inspire a lot of other people out there. And we're glad that we can give you the shine. Um, Charles Holmes at Rolling Stone for your baby profile. Um, Emma Stevenson. Um, at the New York Times for your Flatbush Zombies Guide to Flatbush, and of course, Evelyn McDonald at uh, the Billboard um, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Gender and Racial Imbalances. Um, And I also want to thank Ben and Brandon for uh, hanging out with us today, um, giving us some cool perspective. Thank you guys for hanging out. Um, Thank you. And thank thank y'all for listening. Thank the listeners for coming through, stopping by, hanging out with us. Uh, Please go check out those articles that we talked about. Um, stay in tune. And uh, check out us at Central Sauce. Like we said, we got a few dope pieces coming next week, and we'll, we'll have a few dope pieces. Nigel's got some heat on New Orleans coming up. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be a great piece, man. I read through that. That's Wow. That, it was, it was you guys go read. check that out because that's going to be an incredible piece. Yeah, I'm from New Orleans, so I, I always put on for my city. And also, make sure you go check out Connor's piece, um, The Sample God. Um, go go look up on those uh jesus king samples but uh but that's it that's all for us today at episode four of in search of sauce thank y'all again for listening and uh we'll see you next time all right all right peace peace episode of In Search of Source featured Nigel Washington, Ben Carter and Brandon Hill of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for this show is functioned up by Basti. Thanks to Joe Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Joe Breakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element and content covered in the episode can all be found in the description below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.